Judges chapter 14. Let's pray. Our Father God, we do ask that your word would speak a relevant word to us today. Your word is always relevant. We think of all that's going on in contemporary lives, in our individual, individual lives today, in contemporary society, and we pray, Lord, that your word, ever living, ever true, would speak with power this morning to our own individual situations and the situations of our society today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So friends, Judges chapter 14 and verse 1, and this is our custom, I'll read out the passage, and it's a story, so I'll read out this part of the story that we're looking at, which is chapter 14. It's a great story. Judges 14, beginning at verse 1, let's hear then God's word. Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah, and behold, a young lion came toward him, roaring. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, And although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he'd done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. After some days, he returned to take her. And he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. He scraped it out into his hands and went on, eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave some to them, and they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. His father uh, went down to the woman, and Samson prepared a feast there. For so the young men used to do. As soon as the people saw him, they brought 30 companions to be with him. And Samson said to them, let me now put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is within the seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, put your riddle that we may hear it. And he said to them, Out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. And in three days, they could not solve the riddle. On the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, Entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us here to impoverish us? And Samson's wife wept over him and said, You only hate me. You do not love me. You've put a riddle to my people and you have not told me what it is. And he said to her, 
Behold, I have not told my father nor my mother, and shall I tell you? She wept before him the seven days that their feast lasted. And on the seventh day he told her, because she pressed him hard. Then she told the riddle to her people. And the men of the city said to him, on the seventh day before the sun went down, What's sweeter than honey? What's stronger than a lion? And he said to them, If you had not plowed my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. And he went down to Ashkelon and struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house. And Samson's wife was given to his companion, who had been his best man. Riddles can be a lot of fun, particularly when you can finally figure them out, but they can be frustrating until you have determined what the riddle means. Uh, Perhaps you are familiar with the story of the Hobbit when Bilbo is engaging with a game of riddles with Gollum. Gollum begins the riddle game by uh, saying, what is as tall as trees, has roots that no one sees, up, up it goes, but never grows. Bilbo says, a mountain. And then it's Bilbo's turn. And Bilbo says to Gollum, 30 white horses on a red hill. First they champ, then they stamp, then they stand still. And Gollum says, teeth. And the riddle goes on and Bilbo finally cannot think of a good riddle and he puts his hand in his pocket and then says out loud, what's in my pocket? Which is not exactly a fair riddle. And uh, Gollum fails to guess and Bilbo wins the game and saves his life and wins Gollum's ring. Riddles have a appealing side to them. They're used in all kinds of different movies and literature in, in, the, in the Harry Potter series. There's lots of riddles in it to captivate your attention. Back in the beginning of the 20th century, a well-known work of literature from that period was called The Riddle in the Sands. One big riddle. Even there are puzzles, not exactly riddles that people love. Wordle today, for instance, some people love to play. Here we have a riddle. Oh, I don't mean the riddle that Samson tells, though that's a part of it. I mean the riddle of Samson. Why is he in the Bible? What does it mean? Why has God anointed Samson with his spirit. I mean, Samson, of all people. I mean, Samson is basically portrayed as a kind of ancient Middle Eastern version of a 007 womanizer with a Rambo physique. What's he doing in the Bible? And if he's in the Bible, why is he anointed by the Spirit? 
One of the biggest mistakes that people make in interpreting the Bible is to interpret it all the same. Paul's letter to the Ephesians cannot be interpreted in the same way that we interpret the book of Judges. For all sorts of different reasons. It's a different place in salvation history. It's also a different genre, a different piece of literature. Paul's letter to the Ephesians is it's very different kind of style and literary genre than Judges, which is a story. It must be interpreted like a story. And in stories, there are examples in them that are not always meant to be examples to emulate. Sometimes they're meant to be examples to avoid. And here, in addition to that, as I say, there's a riddle. The whole story is a riddle. And the riddle of the story is intended to help us understand the riddle of our lives, what they mean, where we're going, what God wants of us. So I'm going to take you through this, and I actually have six points, which don't be frightened, they won't each be as long as when I have three points. (laughs) But think of it like that game Wordle, where you have six opportunities to get it right, and we're going to go through them. Though... Each of them actually have an important message, but the final one is the real thing or the biggest biggest point. So first of all, first aspect of this riddle, God delights even to rescue his broken people. I mean, the whole society at the time was broken. Samson mirrors their brokenness with his own brokenness. He goes off and tries to marry this unbelieving woman, which of course was against the Old Testament law. The issue was not race. It wasn't that she was a Philistine. It's that she was uncircumcised. In other words, she wasn't a part of the covenant of of, of faith. She was an unbeliever. And Old Testament Israel knew that was wrong. You were meant to marry someone in the faith, part of the covenant part of God's people. The same in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul teaches that we are free to marry whoever we want as long as he or she is in the Lord. But he goes off and wants this woman. She's right in his own eyes. She looks really something. And he wants her. And his parents are going crazy at the idea that he's going to go off and marry the wrong person and they try to persuade him otherwise. They say, oh, come on, Samson, isn't there someone, isn't there a nice young girl from your Bible study group? <laughs> but he will have his own way. But in his brokenness, uh, God, God rescues his broken people. The illustration I like to use of this is from the movie Sea Biscuit, which came out in 2003. It's of a, about a horse of that name that was a broken horse, and it was coached by a broken man, and it was bought by a broken millionaire who'd had brokenness in his own life, and it was ridden by a jockey who was broken, blind in one eye, and yet beside, despite all this brokenness, Sea Biscuit won. We have a a horse racing fan up in the balcony. <laughs> and at one point, the coach 
looks out at this sea biscuit horse who is unimpressive. And he's questioned, why are you putting so much effort into it? And he says, you do not throw away a whole life just because it's beaten up a little bit. God doesn't throw away your life just because you're beaten up a little bit. He delights to rescue broken people. That's his business. That's what he does. That's part of the riddle here. Uh, The second aspect of the riddle, though, is that God even uses failed leaders. Now, that's an important part of the riddle to get straight in our minds these days. With all the stories of failed Christian leaders that are around in in the media these days, It's important to understand that it's no surprise to God and that God God uses even failed leaders. Samson was a failure in all sorts of ways. He was a moral failure. He was a strategic failure. His his life was a mess. He he destroyed his own life. He was blind by the end. He was blinded. And he's the last of the judges because he was such a disaster. No other judge comes afterwards. And the whole society goes into increasing decay. He's a failure. That's not to, to say that God even uses failed leaders is not to excuse the failures, as we'll see in a moment. But it is to acknowledge that God even uses failed leaders. The Bible is unequivocal in its testimony of this. Samson, uh, David, a uh, great man of God, but also an adulterer and a murderer. The same is true in church history. Those of you who've been around the church for a while will know that I I used to study Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards, 18th century evangelical leader, a great man of God in all sorts of different ways, brilliant and bright, something of the Mozart of theology, a genius from a very young age. Yes, indeed, Edwards. Worth reading, much to learn from him. But Edwards also owned slaves. That's wrong. Not only did he own slaves, we have a little scrap of a piece of a manuscript where he's defending those who own slaves. Uh, His argument is essentially, given the social structure in which he lived at the time, it was impossible to get away from the implications of slavery. If you even bought sugar, you were somehow supporting slavery. And so therefore, what are you going to do? Make the best of a bad job, which I'm sure he did. I'm sure he, he, he tried his best. That was his argument, and it was a bad argument. He was wrong. To be fair to Edwards, even his his son, Jonathan Edwards Jr., became at the forefront of the abolition movement. And so there's a, in his theology, unknown, unrecognized even by Edwards, was the ticking time bomb that exploded uh, the institution of slavery. But Edwards was wrong. Uh, less well-known, John Wesley, and a great Christian leader. John Wesley, I mean, talk about bad marriages. John Wesley had a disastrous marriage, stormy, chaotic, almost humorously bad if, you, if, you, if it wasn't so sad. The great John Wesley. That's not to excuse any of that, but it is to comfort us that when God uses even a failed leader, he does it to show that who he is. 
how good and kind he is. That's why these failures are written in, in Holy Scripture, so that we might realize that the true hero of the story is not Samson or David, but God and his goodness and his kindness. We don't get into iconography. We don't have our little icons of our heroes on the wall worshipping and bowing down before them. It's God who's the hero. And all our, all our forefathers, even in the Bible, have all sorts, of, all sorts of errors. Not to excuse any of it, as we'll see in a moment. But to comfort us that God can use such people in our lives. Oliver Cromwell, I think, put it best. Oliver Cromwell, when he was being painted, a portrait was being made of him. And he noticed that the artist was smoothing over his portrait to make him look good. And Cromwell famously said, no, 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 paint me warts and all. Absolutely. Because it's God that the story is about. So there's that part of the riddle. But then uh, third, and and this is so important that we understand, I think especially these days, just because someone is massively spiritually gifted does not necessarily mean that they are in any way spiritually mature. Uh, Samson was massively spiritually gifted. We, we, we often get this the wrong, wrong in our imagination of what Samson would look like. Perhaps you had a children's Bible where Samson is there with his pecs the size of a mountain and that kind of thing. But that's the wrong picture. If Samson had really been built like that, the question would never have been from the Philistines, where does he get his strength from? They would have known where he got his strength from. It would have been obvious. He was built like Schwarzenegger. That's why he was strong. But no, his strength came from the Lord, from a spiritual anointing. They couldn't figure it out. I rather imagine he looked like a nerd, not like Schwarzenegger. How can this guy be so strong? That's the point. He was spiritually gifted. In his commitment, the Nazarite vow, the long hair, it was an anointing from the Lord that came on him from moment to moment. Spiritually gifted, but but astonishingly spiritually immature. You see this all over the story of Samson, of course. Here you get his immaturity in in the feast that he prepares, which is basically a, a lengthy stag party. Talk about spiritual immaturity. You know, for so the young men used to do, as it says in verse 10. I bet they did. And Samson encouraged it. How spiritually immature. And, and then he's, he's immature with how he relates to his, uh, his wife-to-be. When she begs him to tell him the riddle, he says, I, I haven't told mum or dad, so I'm not going to tell you. Well, how immature is that? I mean, imagine how she would have felt. I haven't told mummy and daddy. I'm not going to tell you. In other words, he's still locked into his parents. That's why he goes back to dad at the end. He hasn't matured to be a man in his own right. Why should I tell my wife? I haven't told mum and dad. It's so immature. And perhaps most blatantly is his reply when the men of the city say in verse 18, they've got the riddle, what is sweeter than honey, what is stronger than a lion, uh, the, the, the... 
uh, they found the answer to the, to, to, to the carcass and all that that is a, a part of the story. They've got the answer. And then, uh, uh, at least at that level, and then Samson replies, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. Well, our translations rather hide it, but of course a heifer is a cow. So he's basically calling his wife a cow, which is not very spiritually mature. He's suggesting that they kind of slept with her and wooed her, and, and, and he calls her publicly, you know, a, a cow. I mean, massively immature and astonishingly spiritually gifted. And sometimes the two can go together. Not to excuse it, but it can happen. It's the fruit of the Spirit that gives us maturity, love, joy, peace, patience, and kindness, not the gifts of the Spirit. If you come from a charismatic background, and we, of course, have many people here from that uh, background at College Church, and you perhaps can think of someone who's prophetically very gifted, but not mature. Or someone who's administratively very gifted. He can get anyone to do anything. He has leadership gifts off the charts, but he's manipulative, not mature. Or think even of Jesus, who taught that it's even possible to do miracles in his name. On the last day, they will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and heal and do miracles in your name? And he will reply to them, I never knew you. It's even possible so spiritually gifted to do miraculous wonders and prophesy in the name of Jesus and not even have a relationship with Jesus. I don't think that's the case of Samson. I I think he's just astonishingly immature. But it's important we get that right in our minds. Otherwise, when we hear someone who's very gifted and is used by God but does something really ridiculous, we'll think, well, how can the two go together? Well, the answer is they, they, they do sometimes, I'm afraid. Not to excuse it, but to recognize it. And if you're in a Bible study group and someone always knows the right answers, they're kind of Bible answer man, don't think that necessarily that means that they're good at living it. I mean, you hope they would be, but not necessarily. None of that is to excuse it, which is the, the fourth of these six aspects of the riddle. We shouldn't excuse it. Because... Samson's immaturity destroyed his life, made a mess of his leadership opportunities. He was blinded by the end, physically. And people, of course, had often wondered how on earth it is that Samson was so oblivious to the way he has been manipulated by the various women in his life, including his wife here, but then afterwards Delilah, the prostitute. How, how is that possible? How could he be so blind? The answer is that before his physical blindness, he has a spiritual blindness. And the one leads to the other. With increasing rationalization of his sin, he becomes increasingly blind until he cannot see at all. And ironically, when he is finally physically blind, it is the beginning of his spiritual Seeing. Oh, don't excuse sin. Don't rationalize it. Devastating consequences for you, your family, your church, your country, your nation, your friends. 
someone buys a Playboy magazine at 14 or 15 and then starts to get into the internet and then can't get a kick out of the normal stuff and it gets worse and worse and worse and worse as they rationalize until they're finally in the pit of hell. Don't rationalize your sin. Don't excuse it. It will blind you. Blind you to the truth of who you are. Don't blame God for it. Don't blame your parents for it, as Samson sort of did. Don't blame the other people who came to the party, as he did. Look at yourself. Don't make excuses. That's the path to hell, rationalizing your sin rather than repenting of it. true in the moral life it's true also in the intellectual life I, I, I often think these days there's no real way of explaining some of the nonsensical ideas that are being propounded by highly intelligent academics there's no way of explaining it other than blindness a gradual rationalization one thing after another after another until you can no longer see. You don't understand where you are and you're, you're stuck. Well, we've um, critiqued Samson under the sovereignty of God and his grace, but now we need to turn the corner to something more positive. So fifth, we've now come to what then, by contrast, is the most excellent way. And that's another principle of interpreting stories, is to interpret the story by contrast. If there are examples here we are to avoid, what in Scripture is the contrasting model we are to emulate? And the most excellent way, according to the Apostle Paul, is love. How little of that did Samson have? How much was he a supremely gifted man, but without love? And when Paul writes to the Corinthian church, he brings out the same similar sort of set of issues for the Corinthian church. It very much was a Samson kind of spirit. And there's a lot of that around today, isn't there? Bigger, better, faster, more. Without love. And the apostle Paul tells us, now I will show you a still more excellent way, which is the way of love. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm only a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have and I deliver up my body to be burnt, I'm even a martyr. But have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. And the famous words continue... Until the end of that chapter, he says, the greatest of these is love. I've been around in ministry for long enough now that I sometimes reflect on the parts of the ministry that God has given me that I remember most clearly. And you might think that I remember clearly the sermon I've preached, but the truth is I hardly remember the sermon I preached last week. I know all of you could recite it by, by heart. 
What I remember is when I've been touched by love or when I've seen someone else touched, experienced love. I remember the person who came to faith out of a loveless home and found God's love. I remember the Sikh man from the Sikh religion who came to faith in Jesus and found God's love and we baptized him. I remember that. I remember the church in Baku in Azerbaijan when we were doing some missionary work there where there was a revival going on and I could still uh, see in my mind's eye the motto they had painted on the back of that church wall which said, we are the church of love. Love. So easy today to misunderstand love and think it's somehow in contrast to truth, and that would be another whole sermon. But in our Samson-like era, where bigger, better, faster, more is the mantra, by contrast, we learn instead love. Which brings us to the final part of the riddle, which I think we can simply say is the Messiah I know that sometimes people who preach from the Old Testament and get quickly to Jesus are criticized for being overly pietistic or not taking the text seriously and all the rest, but I'm sure the final point of this riddle is, uh, is the Messiah, is Jesus uh, himself. Out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. What is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? Psalm 19 tells us the word is sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Well, that's almost there. But I think in the end this is not only about the written word but about the incarnate word. Uh, This hymn puts it very well, I think. I'll quote, Thy mercy, my God, is the theme of my song, the joy of my heart, and the boast of my tongue. Thy free grace alone from the first to the last hath won my affections and bound my soul fast. Without thy sweet mercy, I could not live here. Sin would reduce me to utter despair, but through thy free goodness my spirits revive, and he that first made me still keeps me alive. He is indeed the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus, stronger than a lion and sweeter than honey. Out of the eater comes something to eat, out of the strong something sweet. You see that lion ripped in two. What good could come out of that carcass? There it is, dried up quickly in the desert air. Bees make a home, and Samson scoops honey out of it and nourishes himself. 
ripped into, broken, bleeding, dying. And so the whole riddle comes down to this, the one who died that we might live, the one who experienced bitterness of death, that we might have the sweetness of the honey of life. My friends, the Bible is not about rules and regulations and judgment and condemnation. It is about rules and regulation and judgment and condemnation and how God takes that judgment and condemnation in himself that those who believe in him might go free. Or to put it in a word, redeem. Out of the eater, something to eat. Out of the strong, something sweet. God in his mighty power has himself vanquished. He himself has been vanquished. That we might have the victory. I think that's, in the end, the the riddle and the riddle of life. Let's pray together. Our Father God, we uh, do uh, thank you that you can use even failed heroes like Samson. Help us, Lord, if there has been someone in our life who God used, but then at some point or other it was revealed they were a failure. Not to conclude from that, Lord, that what we learnt was wrong, or that you are not faithful. Help us instead to conclude what a faithful God you are, that you can use even people like, like that for your goodness and glory. Uh, we do pray also, Lord, that we will learn, though, from the example of Samson to avoid sin, and especially, Lord, not rationalize it, not let it build up within, not make excuses, not defend ourselves before you, but come to you in humility and openness and ask for forgiveness and repent of our sins. And then most of all, Lord, by your Spirit, we pray that this morning we would have renewed sweetness of the honey of your word, but even more than that, the honey of you yourself in our souls now and forever. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.